Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this Friday episode of Intelligence Squared. This week, we were joined by Rosie Whitehouse, author of the new book, The People on the Beach, Journeys to Freedom After the Holocaust. She spoke to Edward Lucas, columnist at The Times, about the extraordinary stories of Jews after the Holocaust, how they had survived, why many still felt unsafe in Europe, and also the lessons from those stories that we need to know today. It's a really fascinating conversation, and if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Rosie's book in the podcast description. Now, let's go to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Intelligence Square podcast. My guest today is Rosie Whitehouse, who I have known since 1981, when we were both helping organise the LSE Students' Solidarity with Solidarity, that's Polish Solidarity, in which I may say Rosie did a great deal more work than I did. So our friendship goes back a long way, full disclosure, and so does our passionate interest in Eastern Europe. And Eastern Europe is at least partly the scene for Rosie's new book, which I'm going to ask her to explain what it's about. It's called The People on the Beach. Rosie, who are the people and where's the beach? Well, we may have this passionate interest in Eastern Europe, but this beach is in northwestern Italy, not far from the from the port city of Savona. And the people were 1,300 Holocaust survivors who made their way to this pebbly beach in the middle of a moonlit night in June 1946 to climb aboard a converted Canadian corvette and sail secretly to the Palestine Mandate and uh, were prepared to take on the British Navy in order to land in Haifa. And it's an extraordinary fact that this story is so unknown. We, one feels that this, the Holocaust is the central historical artefact of modern history. It's the one thing, certainly in Britain, that every child seems to learn about, at least to some extent, in school. How did you come across this story and why hadn't it been told before? Well, I think that it's partly hasn't been told because it's a story about what happened after the Holocaust. And I've always been fascinated since I was a small child that biographies of Holocaust survivors say all these terrible things happened to this person and they were liberated in an XYZ place in 1945. And then in 1949, they went to live in Israel. And you think, well, wait a minute, what happened in all these intervening years? And this is a period that's been totally overlooked in history. And it's very strange that such an important period of time, which is the which is between the Holocaust and the founding of the State of Israel, should literally slip between the cracks. It, it's very odd, and there are many reasons that we can go into for that. But I, I stumbled across this story completely by accident, which is probably how you find the best stories as a journalist, I think. I was uh, writing a guidebook to this part of Italy, and I'm very interested in post-war Italy. So I decided to search the names of the towns and put in afterwards 1945, 1946. So I typed in Savona, 1946, and up popped on my computer a newspaper clipping which described how these people arrived on the beach and how they sailed away. And I just could not understand how how these people could have got there. Who had told them this boat was coming? Who had who'd given the money to get there? How did you know how how had all this been organised? Because this boat had sailed from New York. It was this is a major organisation that I could see that I, I was I had stumbled across. And uh, so the first thing that, that I did is I got in the car with my husband and we drove down to the to the beach and we walked around on the beach and we started asking people questions about whether they knew anything about the story and we came across a fisherman who had been a small child and remembered watching the people arrive on the beach and he described them to me and 
I got in my car and I went home and I thought it's going to be simple this. I'm just going to go on Amazon and I'm going to go click and uh, I'll buy a book which will explain everything to me. But hundreds and hundreds of books later and hundreds of miles driven in my car, uh, I had to write my own book to explain it to myself. So that was, I actually had to write the book to understand the story. I, it wasn't even like you could put in a proposal before you've written the book. Yeah, because I think people assume that you know, the either the British or the Americans or the Red Army or whoever it was liberates the concentration camp and then presumably there will be some kind of mass, systematic, well-organised, compassionate effort to restore the inmates of the concentration camps to health, to reunite them with surviving family members who look after them, rehabilitate them and, you know, someone must have taken care of this. And what you depict in most sort of harrowing terms in your book is that it was absolutely not that at all. The occupiers basically didn't know what to do, um, or the victors, the people who occupied defeated Nazi Germany, had basically didn't expect to find all these um, destitute, emaciated survivors. They didn't know what to do with them. In many cases, they didn't want to have anything to do with them. And the conditions in the immediate post-war months and even years were actually extremely grim. Yeah, they were very grim indeed. And I was very shocked by this when I, I discovered it. I wasn't surprised that there wasn't a huge, you know, I mean, the, and today we have UNHCR who comes there to, to help refugees and, and we have a system in place. I, I wasn't surprised that this system wasn't in existence. But what I had naively not understood was that there was no recognition that the Jews had suffered any differently from anybody else. And that is really shocking when you see how the reaction was, particularly in the area that I sent a, a good chunk of my book in, in, uh, in Bavaria, in the American-occupied zone, where the Americans were insisting that the Jews return, returned home and they were classified as Poles or Lithuanians or Romanians. And so they were being housed in displaced persons camps alongside people who who had who who had persecuted them uh, it was a very uncomfortable situation for them to be in and that when the number i mean we this is also we're making an assumption here that all holocaust survivors come out of camps which is uh, not the case and that's uh, that's something we have to remember a lot of people came out of the forest they came out of hiding and they they went uh, and they came out of the soviet union where they'd also fled and when they arrived home, they found there were other people sitting at their dinner table and they, uh, and they, they, they had the door of their, of their own home slammed in their faces and people uh, did not welcome them back. And that's a very disturbing question that, we, that needs to be addressed is that, and understood, I think, by those of us who, who do not live in Eastern Europe and, and, and do not have that family experience of remembering what happened there, the brutality of the Second World War on the ground in Poland was extraordinary. We'll get into that more later on in our conversation. But first of all, I want to bring out the extraordinary personalities that you highlight. We have stories of people who survived the camps. We have stories of people who, you say, survived fighting as partisans in the forest, having escaped from ghettos and sewers and then you know, living in very tough conditions and doing their best to fight, fight the Nazis um, directly. We have people who came from the West or, from pa- or indeed from Palestine before Israel existed to try and help the survivors after. So I'm wondering, I thought you, you were able to track some of these people down. Who are the ones who you met who had the biggest impression on you? Well, firstly, I, th- I think it's important to, to say actually how I found them, because 
I remember standing looking out at the sea, looking at, across the sea to, to, the, to this beach and thinking, who were these people? How do I know who, who, who these 1,300 people were? And of course, I sort of naively started searching. And then I realised that it's just like boat people today. You know, those people who cross the Mediterranean from North Africa, no one's taking a list of their names when they board the boat. And uh, it's only when they get to the other side that people take down their names. And that was exactly what happened in, in the case of the people on the beach, that when they, were, they arrived in Haifa, the British took down their names. And so I had to then start to search, search for them. And it, it was an incredible search, which uh, I don't speak Hebrew, but I'm searching. I, I had to resort to searching in multiple languages to find their identities. And it was with, I mean, great excitement that I began to realise that they, their story told the story of, of survivors in general, which was, uh, was an amazement to me. And you made a very important decision, I think, which is that you didn't approach them immediately which must have been you know, the temptation to you know, rush over and say, hey, tell, tell me what happened, because you wanted to do as much research as possible first in order to be able to gain their, um, their, their, their confidence. Absolutely. I, 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 I've learned that I'm, I've, I've, with talking to survivors, is that they will only tell you something if, if, they, 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 if you actually know what you're talking about. And this is why I think this myth of that survivors never want to talk about what happened to them emerged, because it was actually, I think, the general public's problem that they didn't know what questions to ask them. So the survivors just shut up. And I've, it's also making the survivors trust you in, in that way that you come out. And one thing that really alarmed me when I was meeting them was that obviously my name is Rosie Whitehouse and you don't have to be a genius to realise that Whitehouse is not a Jewish name and so the first thing they would say to me well Rosie Whitehouse who are you and what are you doing here so I would say well actually my married name is Judah and uh, we we have a very Jewish family and I would also explain that uh, there was a Holocaust backstory in my husband's family and then they go oh that's all right then I don't have to be careful what I say to you and I've always been left wondering, well, if I, if I hadn't been able to say that, what would they have actually told me? And I then discovered when they, they realised that I knew about, I knew Eastern Europe, uh, particularly that I knew Ukraine, that they go, oh, OK, now I'm going to tell you something I, would, I don't tell other people. So there's a, that was the first revelation to me in which they made my impression. I think it would be very unfair, going back to your original question about whose story moved me the most, because... The stories that actually moved me the most were when I could only find the people's name and I couldn't find anything about them because actually that's the horrible story of the Holocaust is that is that the, these stories died and disappeared and these people were probably the sole survivors of their family and nobody prob- probably ever looked up their name or tried to find them. Yes, and you have a very poignant um, paragraph which ends the book where you're talking about um, Moshe Becker born somewhere in Poland in 1930, who's just one of the hundreds of names um, who you haven't been able to, to track down. And you think, maybe I've just sat next to Marshall Becker on the bus or walked past him in the supermarket in, in, te- in Tel Aviv. And it, it's so tantalising to see these sort of you know, tiny two-dimensional traces of what was actually absolutely sort of, you know, it was a real live 3D person who's been through all this and, and actually made it out at the end. We still don't know what happened to them. Absolutely. I, I, find, 
I found that was actually what was driving me. I mean, I was sitting up late into the night hunting for people. And I remember at one point my husband goes, do you really have to find this person? I was like, yes, I do, because he might die before I find him. And and he's the only person who came from this particular town who can tell me what happened here. And uh, yeah, there were, and, and but I searched numerous, numerous times for these people's names. This was what also, I mean, I know when I'm being clear and thinking straight, it's an algorithm on my computer, which must be helping me. But it was almost sometimes like they were hiding and they just eventually agreed to come out and to, to let me find them and let me find their story. And it, it's, it, it became a very emotional thing for me. I mean, I do think of them as my people. It's not just the survivors, though. You also write about these amazing um, people who turned out the, the US Army chaplain who um, had no expectation of what he was going to he was a rabbi rabbi Klausner, is that right um and these other people people who parachuted in from from from, from israel to try and organize relief works or to hunt nazis or whatever and so it's it's not just a story of suffering it's a story of agency as well it's very much a story like that i mean Klausner is is the forgotten moses of the jewish people and why he had just disappeared into the black hole of history i have i have no idea he's the most extraordinary man he was just 30 when he arrived at dachau he was he he had been given some plastic mezuzahs to give to survivors i mean that's how badly prepared he was and he walked into the barracks and somebody asked him if they he could find their brother who was also a u.s army chaplain and he said yes and then he realized that it was up to the people to help themselves in this sense. And he decided to publish the first proper list of survivors. This was something about lists that became an obsession. At the back of my book, I have a list of the people's names. And and the lists of survivors were being written everywhere after the Second World War. They were being pinned up in synagogues. Klausner had an office in the Deutsches Museum in Munich where people would come and write their names on a wall. It was like his own wailing wall. And he produced this list of Sherep Taptila, the surviving remnant. And uh, it, it is it is one of the most important historical documents of, the, of that, that post-war war period. But, you know, I mean, how many people have ever heard of it? I'd never heard of it before. That you did, I think he wrote a memoir that you weren't actually able to get, get hold of. Is that yes, right? I got hold of this behind. memoir. And of course, it was, uh, like many of the books I read, it came from libraries in America and had inside it stunted uh, redundant material. And, uh, and I bought it for like 5p online. I mean, the material was far from redundant. It was a revelation to me. And then I also found books which had been on secondhand websites, which had tantalising little stickers in them. And they belonged to a person with a Jewish name who lived in Florida. And you wondered if that person was a survivor. And that's why he had this book. And his family didn't think it was interesting. And they just chucked it out. And it had ended up on Amazon for 10p. But there's so, yeah. there's so, many, yeah, there's so many memory holes in this. And it is extraordinary when you think how much... You know, German government money and philanthropic money goes into official commemoration in search of the Holocaust. And I was particularly struck by your account of the Deutsches Museum in Munich, which you've just mentioned, which was a kind of nerve centre for the recovery of Jewish, um, organised Jewish life after defeat of the, of, of, of the Nazis. And yet, you've explained in the book how the Allies sort of you know, demanded this all should be cleared out and take all that stuff down off the wall. And then you actually go to the museum and ask them 
do you have any record in this history museum about this very important historical thing that happened? And you don't get the answer you expect. Yeah, it was absolutely extraordinary. I went in, I asked at the reception desk, and eventually we ended up in the library. And the librarian was, you know, extremely friendly. And, you know, this is like a temple to knowledge that I'm standing in the middle of. And he goes, oh, the director's writing a history of the museum. I'll, I'll get him on the phone for you. And the director, the director comes on the phone and says, no, I don't know anything about this. I've never heard this. And uh, so it's presumably not in the book which by now he must also have written. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's incredible how it's, it's just forgotten. But what was also fascinating for me was that as I, because, I, you know, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not an archive historian. I'm, you know, I'm a road trip historian. And I got in my car and I drove the route that the people came out and ha- the places that they left and I went to visit them. And what was so interesting was actually meeting people who were commemorating these stories and discovering why they had a contemporary relevance to people. You know, there were young, trendy people in, in Lublin. There were monks in a, in a monastery in Bavaria and uh, left-wing activists in, in Italy. Uh, and the, they, they found that this story was speaking to them in a contemporary fashion, which is, I think is very interesting. It, it, it may surprise people to hear that. I mean, I'm always trying to tell them, explain to people that Holocaust isn't history. It's still alive. It's, it's still there with you. The people I met are still alive. And those people who, who were affected by the Holocaust, it lives on in your family. So it's far from history. Yes, and I think it, I mean, it's, it's one of the great sort of subtleties of the book. That one starts off with this very sort of stark depiction of you know, terrible things done with unbelievable cruelty to innocent people. And then as the book goes on, it just gets more and more complicated. And there's more and more nuance. So we see people that we think of as heroes like General Patton, the great American um, commander who uh, you know, defeated the Nazis and you know, ran the American occupation of, 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 of southern Germany, coming out with unbelievably nasty and Semitic um, comments. And we see people we might think of as villains actually being in other eyes seen, seen as heroes. Um, how did your own understanding of the Holocaust in Eastern Europe and the role of all the different parties involved, how, how did this evolve over the writing of the book? Well, what really helped me was a, a visit to Kelza, where I met a gentleman who has... Which is, we should explain that Kelza is the site of a post-war pogrom in Poland, where Jews were murdered in large numbers in, I think, was it 1946? Yes, and Kelza was also the uh, the site of a very brutal ghetto, and it, it, it has a very bitter history. And I went there because I was interested in this, uh, in this post-war pogrom and why this could happen. And it has been commemorated in the build. It, there was the, uh, the uh, Jewish Defence Committee had a, uh, had a building in the centre of Kelso where the massacre actually happened. And a small group of activists there have campaigned in Kelso to have this, this massacre commemorated and also to try to stamp out anti-Semitism in the town. And they've been actually very successful. They claim that, that now football teams in Kielce no longer sing anti-Semitic chants at football matches. And it has been a very contentious thing. They've had uh, hand grenades thrown at them and it's been a very difficult fight. But talking to them really made me understand when they it was described to me how how brutalised the whole population of Kelso was by the German occupation and how brutality and murder and pillage became an everyday occurrence and that 
we see that the, the, there are problems with uh, soldiers who return from places like Afghanistan, that they're traumatised by what they've seen. Well, basically, I think that the, the whole of Poland needed to be needed to be put on the on the couch after the war and and have some and, and have a, and literally ha- have some kind of psychological treatment because the war in Poland was atrocious and the Nazis inveigled people into into the complicity with what was happening so that most people were very impoverished the jews themselves were not particularly wealthy either and when they moved when they were taken away to to the extermination camps that you know in a terrible war you're not going to leave you're not going to leave winter coats hanging in somebody's cupboard you're going to take them and they're or you're going to take their house because it's better insulated than the one you've got and it's kind of it's a it's a logic of what's happening on the on the ground in warfare and it it implicated people in in this in this massacre so when the jews returned they were they were not welcomed because people had moved into their houses and they'd uh, they'd taken they'd taken the the gravestones and they they'd used them for uh, to lay patios in their gardens it's complicated it's not black and white in the way that i think it can often be portrayed in the press intelligence squared is a tight knit team doing big things and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. There's also the very intriguing story, not very well known, of Abba Kovner, who was a survivor of the Vilnius ghetto, who had wanted to kill six million Germans at random in order to avenge the death of the six million Jews, but also so that no one would think that Jews could be killed with impunity. And his mission was not completely unsuccessful, but largely unsuccessful. Talk talk us through that. Yeah, I think think Kovner and his friends are an extremely interesting example of something which is largely overlooked in popular culture when it comes to the Holocaust. I mean, we do have some of the, 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 it is sometimes there, but 
people generally tend to think that the the Jews allowed this to happen to them and uh, and that they were weak and they went like lambs to the slaughter. The more you know about it, the, the more obvious that this is not is not the case. And Kovner fled with a group of young Jews from the Vilnius ghetto into into the forest and he set up a partisan unit and uh, they fought their way into Vilnius after the war. And I actually would like to say, although he is famous uh, for leading them, that I think that the bravest people in these units were the women, because it was much safer for the women to go out to get supplies, to carry guns and to go on missions, because they were not instantly recognisable as Jewish as the men were, because they could be told to drop their pants and it would be clear they'd been circumcised. So the women were actually very, very brave in this this story. And a big chunk of these, these partisans sailed on the Josiah Wedgwood, which is the boat that I've written the book about. Um, and I think that this story of revenge is, is very interesting because it was very unpopular. And Kovner was the person who decided there was no future for the Jews in Europe, and he began to lead them out. But as he led them out, they travelled through places where they actually saw revenge written in blood on walls um and uh, you could see how angry those people who had been who, who had been who had been murdered were and how they wanted they they this it was not a, a docile a docile death in this sense but Kovner became obsessed with revenge and as he and his colleagues later wrote that they it they literally at a certain point became begun began, began to become unhinged and they, he, because he's obsessed with the poisoning, he loses sight at how he's actually intending to lead the people out of Europe. And this is when some of these other heroes become involved. But uh, Kovner, Kovner failed in his attempts largely because he had no support from the Jews in Palestine and uh, the Jewish authorities in Palestine. But Kovner is always like ahead of his game, really, in all the way through this story. And I've I found actually what happened to him after this revenge story actually the most interesting. He actually wrote an account of the Holocaust as if it would be part of the Jewish Talmud and read in, read in synagogues in hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years' time. And when you actually see the Holocaust explained in the same way as the story of Esther, which is another close show for the Jews, and you, he actually got little explanations in the side as to who was Adolf Hitler, and that is actually the most chilling. He could see that there could be a moment when we actually forgot this story. But he did actually succeed, you think, in poisoning some SS officers, some captured, um, some SS prisoners. Well, um, yeah, Kovner by this point had gone and uh, uh, and would, would, had been arrested, um, pro- probably on a tip-off from the Jewish authorities to the British, and he was in a British jail. But his uh, his associates, the people who sailed on uh, uh, on the on the Josiah Wedgwood, who were part of this group on the beach, they did succeed in in murdering a uh, hundred or so um, SS men who by poisoning the bread. The initial plan, initial plan had been to poison the German water system, so the death would literally come without any, without any, any realization. It would come in your glass of water, just as it had come out of the shower heads in Auschwitz. And this takes us actually quite neatly onto the question of of Israel, which of course didn't exist um, directly after the war. It was sort of there, and a sort of it was a kind of Israeli proto-state with people like David Ben Gurion and others playing a very active role in both the international stage and in um, trying to 
resist the British occupation of, of Palestine as they saw it. But the relationship between both proto-Israel and Israel itself and the Holocaust survivors, the people on the, on the beach, wasn't altogether comfortable. And you have this very striking bit where Dave Ben-Gurion is actually rather unwilling to have these people come to um, Palestine because he thinks that their plight in, in Europe will help his case. I was very struck by that. Yes, I was really struck by that because you, you kind of imagine, you imagine a, a Jewish solidarity here, um, which was, uh, which was the, which was some, somewhat lacking. I mean, I mean, you can, you can see the logic. It's dangerous to have too many uh, refugees flooding into a country which is all, already slightly destabilized. How are you going to, how are you going to feed all these people? How are you actually going to react to them? And of course, also, it's very important for us to remember that those people who had gone to settle in Palestine before the Holocaust had, had left Europe because they were, they were actually rejecting the way of life that was existing in Europe. They were rejecting uh, the shettle mentality and they, want, they were going to build a, you know, a land of kibbutzes and, uh, and you know, it, was, it was a completely... It was, the existence of, uh, uh, of the Jewish movement in Palestine was a rejection of what had existed, existed in Eastern Europe. So there was already a level of tension and there was a ten- level of tension on the ground among Jews themselves in the interwar period about whether they believed you should be you should be socialist and join a build a better socialist society or whether you should be a Zionist and, and leave for and leave for Palestine. And this another of the many poignant sort of vignettes you have in the book is of the in in the Italian camp, the Italian sort of the villa I think it was, where the um, lots of the survivors, um, the child survivors ended up. They were very firmly pushed towards being good Zionists and only speak Hebrew, don't um, you know, try to get children to take crucifixes off that have been given to them by the Catholic families who might have sheltered them. And also for the, for the adults as well, there was this idea that you've got to, you've got to fit this sort of Zionist template if you're going to be, a, if you're going to be a good, good, good Jew. And, and I, I, I found, I found that, um, that, that quite, uh, this sort of idea that identity has been sort of whacked one way by the Nazis, and it's sort of been squeezed another way if you're going to fit in after the war. Yes, very much so. I think that with the, with the children, I can understand that you're trying to build to give them a future. You know, I, I do understand that the idea that it's better to look forward than to look back. But they changed their names, and uh, and they they not only lost their mother tongues, but they lost they lost their name, and uh, and you know that for example, I met one gentleman who was very very kind to me. I spent a lot of time talking to him on the phone. I spent a lot of time at his house drinking cups of tea, although he kept saying because I was British, I really needed a whiskey, and he was very very friendly and hospitable to me. But he told me. He was the sole survivor of his family, and he sailed on the Wedgwood when he was he was sixteen. And when he arrived in Haifa, he said his name he his name was Emmanuel, and they they said, "Oh, that that's not a good name for you." And he said, "Okay." He wanted to take his grandfather's name, and then the authority said, "No, you're going to be called Menachem." And I was just like, "This is just extraordinary." This. Uh, this state control almost of the of the people's yeah. identities, and there was also the feeling in Israel that the Holocaust survivors were sometimes somehow guilty. I think they, they were referred to as was it dust? Yeah. Yeah, they were guilty for having. If they'd survived, they must have collaborated. If they'd been good Jews, they would have they would have fought and fought and died. Again, I find that sort of yeah, this sort of external 
moral template being applied to people after everything they've been through was, was I, I found found very very um, unsettling. Yeah, and a lot of it. I mean, uh, a lot of it was because they didn't actually understand the rules. I mean, they sent the. I mean, they were mostly. I mean, the shocking thing about the people on the beach is that there are that the younger the youngest people are in their teens and the oldest people are are in their late thirties. And they're predominantly men, so it tells you exactly who 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 had a chance of surviving the Holocaust. And so when they came, they were they were often packed off to kibbutzes where they didn't understand how it works. So, for example, you were only allowed if you'd been on a kibbutz for X number of months to uh, to have a bedspread, and X number of years got you a chair. And they felt that they were being badly treated because they they didn't have these things. And there was a lot of misunderstanding as to, to how they were treated. But also, what's very interesting is that is that this story that I've told is actually not known in Israel. That these people, who my people, the people on the beach, that they 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 decided themselves to leave. They decided there was no future in Eastern Europe, and that that what drove them out was not just uh, the Holocaust and the unwelcome homecoming they experienced, but it was it was also Stalinism. And they felt that they could not continue to live the Jewish lives that they'd lived before the war under Stalinist control. And uh, that they want, they saw no future for themselves. And it was an organic movement with uh, among them that took them to Bavaria, took them over the Alps. I mean, there are films of these people walking over the Alps in, in, in city clothes um, in the middle of the winter. I mean, these are desperate people. I mean, it's it's very much like we see now with refugees coming coming to Europe. These were people who who were desperate, and they felt that their fu- the only future lay for them was in Palestine because many of the other doors of the world were closed to them. And that takes us on really to the, if you like, this kind of point of the book for today that we still don't, in your view, understand the Holocaust properly. The what, how would you characterise the sort of simplistic, as you would say, view of the view of the Holocaust, and why is it wrong? Well, I'm like I, ex- I expressed this in the chapter when I when I decided I went to the extermination camps in Poland, and obviously we end up in Auschwitz, and it's this. I mean, there's there is Auschwitz sums up the Holocaust these days for people. I mean, obviously, I have to say this, it's very important in our family because my husband's grandmother was murdered in Auschwitz. So, you know, it, it, I, I, I have to say that, but put this in context. Um, but when Auschwitz was liberated, it didn't make it onto the front pages of the British newspapers. And why Auschwitz has taken on this role is, um, is in itself very interesting. But I think it skews our general understanding of what was going on, because I mean, there was an uprising in Auschwitz when the when the the people who worked in the gas chambers rose up and uh, and tried and uh, rose up against the Nazis, and there were there were underground movements within Auschwitz. But it, our obsession with Auschwitz makes us lose lose the wider context of actually what was happening and what Jews themselves were doing in the war and just how much resistance there actually was. That was something that really surprised me when I started reading up about the people who ended up on the beach. These were these were no shrinking violets. These were people who'd been part of uh, partisan movements within ghettos. They had they had been they had been fighting Nazi oppression for years. It's very difficult, this, because people, you know, well, it's grateful people understand anything, and then to say that it's much more complicated than that is, 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 is tricky. But I think 
yeah, this point, I think, is also made by Timothy Snyder in his book, that the majority of Jews were not gassed. They were killed close to their homes, often by people they only mostly shot, and in many cases by people that they that they knew. Um, but what's to, to, to round things? To, so to, to round things off, what, what's the message you want people most to take away from your book, from this extraordinary feat of both research and exposition? I want people to remember that that. You, when we talk about the Holocaust, we tend to talk about six million. We write names on walls. It, it doesn't tell you that these were actually real people with real stories, and you know they were they were ordinary people like you and me, uh, and uh, and they had they had their own lives and their own aspirations. And as survivors, uh, they they lived through the Holocaust, but they've done a hell of a lot of other things. And, you know, often survivors say to me, well, why is everybody only interested in these six years or these two years that um, I was I was uh, I was held prisoner by the Germans? You know, aren't you going to ask me about the other 80 years of my life? And I think that we have to remember that, that this is a very human story. But increasingly, I would also want people to think more seriously about when we classify things as Jewish interest. You know, my book will go to Jewish Book Week, probably, if I'm lucky, and it will be in the Jewish section in the bookshop. And I I find that very depressing because I think that the Jews didn't, didn't holocaust themselves. It was done by other people. It was done by humanity to the Jews. So this is... It, it, I would like... To bring the, the the people on the beach might bring this story to life, so we begin to understand that this is a this is a human story that we all need to understand, and we need to we need to reassess how we think about it. So, Bridget, that actually gives a chance for sort of a final final question, which is, what's your next book about? Uh, well, my next book, I've actually been busy writing first draft of it uh, during lockdown, and it's actually about my husband's grandmother who was murdered in Auschwitz, as I, as I mentioned earlier. And she was born in Berlin. She was arrested in Nice in September 1943. And the man who was in charge of her arrest was a man who'd been born in Austria. And it raises quite serious questions about the Holocaust. Because why did a man in Austria decide to kill a housewife who was born in Berlin, but had had moved to Paris and was at that time living in, in Nice? What, what, what is actually going on here? And what is the structure within within French society that allowed this to happen. And I think that's really important because one thing you hear when you talk to British Jews who lived through the war here in the UK is that they will tell you that their their parents always had this mantra, 21 miles. That's the distance between Calais and Dover. We were 21 miles from the Holocaust. And that is incredibly close. And I think that we need to begin to focus our attention more on what happened in a country like France, which is much, much more akin to the Britain of 1939 than I would say uh, Poland or, or uh, Lithuania were at the time. Rosie, thank you so much. People can follow you on Twitter. You're at Rosie Whitehouse. I'm at Edward Lucas. And your book, People on the Beach, Escape from Europe After the Holocaust, is um, published by Hearst out in September. I can't recommend it highly enough. Thank you so much for joining us on the Intelligence Square podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ed. It was a pleasure to talk to you.